Thanks for checking out this episode of Business Black Belts. I really appreciate you listening and hope you get some great insights out of today's leader. Let's dive into the show. Welcome back to Business Black Belts. Laura Hoover here with you. Another fantastic leader with us today, Mr. Tim Lance, the President and Chief Operating Officer at Kerrison Techs. Welcome to the show. Why don't you get us started? Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you're doing, you know, a little bit of everything's right up front. Sounds good. Well, Laura, first of all, thanks for having me on the show today. Very excited to be here. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm the President and COO at Care Syntax. Uh, so Care Syntax is a global healthcare technology company. And uh, we're doing some uh, really exciting and innovating things, innovative things around the surgery space. So, uh, you know, for, for those of your listeners who are, you know, following healthcare, even if you're not a healthcare person, but you see it in the news, um, there's been a lot of focus in recent years around finding ways to improve the quality of healthcare, but also bring the cost of healthcare down and make sure that people have access to the care that they need. And so that's really what our company focuses on, but specifically for people who need surgery. Um, and we do that by working with hospitals, uh, by working with surgeons and nursing and, um, you know, clinical teams directly, and also by working with, you know, insurance companies to look holistically at surgery and find a way to, you know, find lots of ways to make it better, more affordable, understand, you know, where there's value that can be delivered to the patient and to the other stakeholders by bringing you know new technology and new data more importantly into the uh, into the operating room so uh, so that's a little bit about us we're uh, you know about a seven eight company originally um, was founded in Germany in Berlin Germany nice. um, by our uh, founders Dennis Kogan and Bjorn von Siemens and um, we uh, still have a big business in Europe we redomiciled the business uh, to the United States in um, 2019, which is when I started um, and kind of helped with that move. And uh, we, you know, kind of even through COVID continued to grow and we uh, we raised a, a Series C round of venture funding with some, uh, it was very exciting for us. It was a very, uh, you know, pretty, pretty large oversubscribed venture round. And we have a you know, great group of investors around the world, great group of executives from uh, you know, some of the top companies in technology and healthcare and, uh, you know, are really think excited about the impact that we're having on on the quality and cost of care so so the first thing that immediately jumps to mind is the difference of scale and of uh, ability to have a healthcare business one side in Europe and one side in the US how how did how did that play out because that that seems again like a, log- a logistical headache but then also just restructuring just sounds like a headache in and of itself. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's, it's an interesting story. And then, you know, I think our story is certainly not new unique for companies in general, but I think in our space, it's a, it's a relatively unique story in that, um, you know, our founders set out to change surgery, right. Yeah. Uh, from a cost and quality and, uh, business perspective as well as a clinical perspective but you know at the time as in a lot of companies you know you can't see the whole future right so you kind of have this big vision that guides you and then you grow and you learn and adapt along the way and i think that's really been our story um and so 
you know, when they started the company in Europe, we were focused on kind of a small piece of technology around, you know, video management and helping the surgeons inside the operating room see the things they needed to see in order to be able to to operate on their their patients better. Um, and then from there, we evolved into starting to build software. And then we did some mergers and acquisitions, you know, both in Europe and the United States. Um, and so, you know, as the business grew, it started to lead us in the direction of where are these opportunities in the market. And, uh, and that led us, you know, around Europe and from hardware to software to data and across the pond into the U.S. Um, so it's definitely been a journey. And uh, for a company our size, you know, I would say it's fairly rare to have such a global footprint. Um, but, um, but I think a lot of that global footprint came from, you know, starting the company in Europe and just the proximity of, you know, country to country, like we have in the U S it's, you know, yeah. state to state, but in there it's a different culture, different country, different language. Um, and so there's just a lot more proximity that allowed us to geographically expand faster, um, yeah, in the beginning. So you also bring up a very good point is that, you know, when we're actually thinking of like in the operating room, the precision and technical advances, at least in the last five years, not to mention 10, 20, you extrapolate that out, has improved significantly. And especially like technology being an, an assist to those surgeons. Mm-hmm. Has there been any kind of recent like trend on that regard from like a patient standpoint? Um, because you know, there's a lot of talk about like the new emerging technologies, like you know, um, from in schooling all the way to the actual operating table itself. Mm-hmm. But we don't really talk much about like the patient experience. I, I feel like from that point. Yeah, no, I think that's um, you know that's an excellent question, and I would say you know if we look at surgery, you know certainly a lot of advances in terms of you know, medical technologies like implantable devices and things like that. I think, you know, what we're seeing in surgery is the next wave of of evolution of technology, which is more of a digital revolution and a data revolution, as opposed to, you know, necessarily a device revolution, although there's yeah. still device innovation happening. Um, and I think as you start to transition into data being the driver of innovation, as opposed to you know, a device that you put in a patient or a tool that you use um, that naturally lends itself towards bringing the patient closer to that, so that activity, it, if that makes sense. I think so. Is, is the data more like, okay, let's track uh, what your body is doing in like the reactives? Like, do you actually need surgery or is it more um, tangible like data? Yep. So it's, um, that's a great question. So it, it really, the way we look at it, um, and, uh, and again, sort of within our space, we're pretty unique in that we're from a platform perspective, the broadest. Um, so there are other folks in the space that are looking at, you know, there's companies that are just looking at teleproctoring, right? How do you, you know, maybe yeah. help a surgeon who does like, I, I do this type of surgery five times a year and I want to make sure I do it safely. So let me have the guy from the university medical center, you know, come and look over yeah. my shoulder. There's companies that just do that. There's companies that just focus on efficiency in the operating room. There's companies that just focus on analyzing, you know, the skill set of a surgeon when they're performing a procedure. Our platform is very broad, so we do all of that. 
Plus we can get into like preoperative risk assessment, post-operative, you know, analysis of teamwork in the operating room and other factors. Um, So when you, when you go broad, like we are, it opens up the door to all of the things you said. So we have clients that we work with and they're looking at data to help say, you know, when a surgeon evaluates a patient, should I operate or not? And if I do operate, you know, there may be two or three different ways I do this procedure, you know, which one's likely to work the best for this patient, right? So we're starting to get into that world of, you know, making the right choice on the front end and assessing the risks and the probability of success, right? So the patient can make that informed decision um, all the way through, you know, preoperative risk analysis. You might say, okay, we're going to do this procedure. And then because the patient, you know, has certain conditions, you may say, you know, they're at a really high risk of getting an infection. Now, if I know that, I can pre-plan how to, you know, mitigate that in advance, right? Um, So that the surgery goes better. And then looking at how teams work together, right? How doctors and nurses, and even like down to the environmental services staff, how they coordinate all of the hundreds of activities that have to happen in that room to make sure that surgery is safe and successful. Um, Down to, you know, machine vision and real-time assistance in the operating room, kind of like you have in a car where you have lane change assist, you have backup cameras. So, you know, we're working, for example, in partnership with Intel um, on a lot of these real-time surgical assisting technologies for surgeons and for nurses in the OR to just help them when they're in that moment, um, you know, make sure that they have good information and it's not creating extra cognitive burden um, very much in terms of how our cars are now using cameras and sensors to help us drive safer. Um, we're doing that similar types of technology in the operating room. Man, I, I, I wish that that was more readily available to more, more people, not just surgeons, but just like the people in the, like the ER room, right? The, the assessment from a patient entering to the patient leaving after post-op, like, and, mm-hmm. and just having that broad picture because there are so many little moving parts that it really does turn efficiency um with the safety but having that broad map that's such a nice view to have especially if it's like all in one hub essentially exactly Exactly. that's uh that's what our that's what our vision is and what we're building towards yes (laughs) so has there i'm I'm gonna stay on this point just a a little bit longer has there been um because I can see how how amazing that would be from like an ER or a surgical standpoint. Okay, having everything together, one hub, bird's eye view of what's going on and how that can directly relate to what I need to be doing. Ha- has it taken hold or is it still, you know, a slow adopter? Yeah, I mean... I mean, for people that work in healthcare and healthcare technology, I think we intrinsically know that healthcare tends to be a little slow on the adoption cycle compared to other industries. And there's been a lot of research on that as well. Um, What I would say is the awareness and market demand and adoption is accelerating. Um, And I think, you know, COVID was challenging in many ways um, and COVID was challenging for the operating rooms because elective surgeries in most parts of the world, if not all, you know, were canceled 
off and on for quite a long time. And surgery is, you know, from a financial perspective, the heart of, of the hospital. Um, usually anywhere from 50 to upwards of 60% of a hospital's revenue comes from the operating room and also about the same percentage of their costs come from the operating room. So for, you know, for businesses all over the world, hospitals are still businesses, right? Um, To essentially lose the largest single source of revenue that they have for anywhere from one to in some places upwards of two years. um, It's really made it that much more important for them to be able to reopen this aspect of their business and make sure that they are doing it better than they've ever done it before. Um, so I think that that's one of the contributing factors to why we see this adoption and like enthusiasm around technology and the OR accelerating right now. And I, I, I know because I have, you know, a, a few friends that have been, you know, surgical nurses or um, ER doctors that have seen a drastic shift from mid-COVID to post-COVID, especially in, in like you open up basically free reign for the operations to begin again. H- has there been like an, an overwhelming like flood back into surgery or still kind of iffy place to place? Yeah, I think that there's a little bit of variation um but i think generally surgery is back around the world um you know i think one of the challenges with volumes recovering in a lot of places back to kind of pre-covid levels uh, or or over that is um you know a lot of healthcare workers burned out yeah and so um you know we have some customers that are you know, literally setting records for the number of surgeries that they're doing, and they're 100% back on track. Um, And then we have, you know, some other customers in other places that are, you know, have 40% of their OR still closed, not because they don't have patients that need care, but because they don't have nurses or anesthesiologists um, to do the work, right? Um, and so I think we're going to see as we go, I mean, we've, you know, everybody hears about physician shortages in the news and nursing short shortages in the news. Um, but this is a very real problem. And, um, I think one of the hard things with COVID was it wasn't just that, you know, people that had spent 20 or 30 or 40 years in their healthcare career were burning out. Brand new clinicians were burning out. You know, I've talked to people that were six months out of nursing school during COVID that burned out before their first year and now don't do nursing anymore. Um, so we're, you know, we didn't just burn out the older generation, we burned out the new replacement generation in a lot of cases as well. And I think that's going to be the, you know, one of the big things going forward that we're going to have to figure out how to deal with. Yeah. I mean, almost everybody knows a nurse or, um, someone in the same practice. I feel like that's just like a first degree touch for, for at least almost everybody. I know three people top of my head who were burned out under a year of coming out of nursing school who went started at the er burned out of that and you know dropped it went to private practice or completely just dropped nursing like exactly yeah Yeah, and it's nurses doctors administrators i mean it's it's you know managers across the board we actually had um we held our um 
United States customer summit where we flew, uh, you know, a bunch of our customers in from around the country in Orlando a couple weeks ago. And our keynote speaker for the event was uh, Dr. Brian Sexton from Duke University. And, you know, his team at Duke has been doing amazing research over the last several years about burnout in healthcare and finding, you know, simple, easy to do optimal strategies that can help sort of reduce the the impact of burnout and kind of really start to protect people's mental health and well-being in very simple steps where the where you start to feel the effects of it quickly and those effects are sustainable without having to do really complex things for long periods of time to get there um, and it was amazing because when dr sexton was doing his his keynote and he put up the QR code for people to access some of these tools. Uh, literally, I mean, you're in a room and a hundred cell phones all went up at the same time and everybody was like clicking on it, trying to get started, um, including me, right? So, yeah. um, so you know, if, if any of your listeners are, you know, experiencing that, you know, in healthcare or not, I would definitely encourage you to look up Dr. Sexton and the work that Duke is doing. And um, they've made a lot of their tools actually available complimentary uh, online for anybody to, to access, but they're doing some amazing research into kind of mental health and, and burnout, especially in healthcare. That that brings up just a very good point is just the amount of research being poured into institutions of like universities and colleges um, for the medical field. Like I like how 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 is that impacting like people coming into the field? Like is it starting to like f- like feed in because I know there's been a lot of research and a lot of um, point on like universities in the past few years, especially with COVID coming out, a lot of, you know, schools took up that burden as well, but has that been seeing any effects? Are, are people burning up before they even finish clinicals? You know, that's, um that's a good question. I, you know, on the kind of med school and nursing school side of it, I, I actually don't know. Um, I, I don't, you know, I have... that's fair kind of good, good, reliable data there. I mean, on the, you know, sort of on the research funding into innovation through the universities, um, I mean, that's obviously always been, you know, a big part of how universities operate and where innovation comes from. Um, you know, I, I can tell you as a, you know, as a technology company, I mean, we definitely have universities around the world that, that we engage with to, you know, co-develop and to do research with. Um, and we actually have, you know, even non-academic uh, hospitals and health systems uh, that we do development work with on new technologies or, or innovations. Um, we have several going in the U.S. and Europe right now um, that uh, that we're really excited about. So I think that's an important part of continuing to advance healthcare is, you know, industry, clinicians, and, you know, academic institutions, you know, teaming up and finding ways to to have productive partnerships. Um, to be able to continue to advance technology. Um, I know my wife's a, a, uh, in her PhD program right now, and you know, she's doing some really exciting research and work, also kind of in a medical-related um, field. But um, you know, some of the things that, that you know, she and her advisor and their teams are working on are game-changing, you know, not just for, for healthcare, but it could be really game changing for a lot of other industries as well. Uh, and I know at least, you know, some of their funding comes from grants and I would imagine that some of it probably also comes from industry as well. I don't know for sure, but um, I do think those public private collaborations are really important to, to making sure that we always have a good stable platform for innovation. No, I'm, I'm with you. First, a congratulations 
early congratulations on the P, uh, PhD track um, for for her. So yeah, she's amazing. I, every time she explains to me the work she's doing, I'm just like, <laughs> that's why you're I'm the like, doctor. <laughs> I'm I'm blown away. Uh, she's she's absolutely just brilliant. Um, and uh, and I'm, yeah, she's uh, it's it's really exciting stuff she's working on. It's very cool. So on on that train of thought, we have Kara Syntax. What do you do outside of that to get away, have fun, de-stress, maybe uh, get some sleep after red eyes, you know? Yeah, so, um, you know, it's obviously, you know, demanding job. Um, but, uh, you know, by, we have, uh, I have four beautiful kids. Um, as, as I already said, I have an amazing wife. Um, so, you know, I really, I love to spend time with my family. Um, my, uh, my oldest daughter is actually in her last semester at Duke getting her master's degree, um, in environmental management. Um, so she's doing a lot of really exciting work in, uh, wildlife and endangered species conservation. So I'm excited for, for her to be graduating from grad school. Um, and then I have, my wife and I still have three younger kids at home. Um, so they have school and extracurriculars, you know, one's a dancer, one's a gymnast, one's a hockey player. Um, so, uh. So yeah, I love going to events with my kids. I actually, I never learned how to ice skate growing up, but my son loves skating and hockey so much that I've actually, uh, in the last year, started to learn how to ice skate. And I just joined my first hockey league. So I'm, you know, in in my, uh, I won't tell you how old I am, but let's just say I'm uh, old enough that I'm not sure that I should be picking up new contact sports to learn how to play. But uh, um yeah, so I just I try to keep active. We love to travel. I love to read. Um, I'm a musician, so I still uh, occasionally find time to you know get up on stage. I play drums mostly, so uh, you know I'll, every once in a while I jump in with a, with a band and you know play a show or something here and there. But um, yeah, it's really just you know being a dad, which is my favorite thing in the world to to be, and um, and kind of enjoying every day as it comes. Oh, that's awesome. So is it just drums? Do you do you play anything else as well? Or is it just the amazingness of the rhythm? Yeah, I am primarily a drummer. I play a little guitar. I play gotcha. a little piano, but not publicly. And then uh, every once in a while, somebody will convince me to get up and, and sing. Um, but uh, Drummer but at heart. The, I like it. Dr- drummer at heart. Yeah. So. <laughs> no, I totally get that. I want to thank you. For coming on today's show I, I know um I could talk about medical sciences almost all day but at that point we'll be boring people about some of those <laughs> things so I want to thank you for coming on today's show if people want to get in contact with you is is, is LinkedIn going to be the best way is going to the website is email yeah I, I would say um yeah I think LinkedIn's probably the easiest to connect with me directly um and then, you know, obviously, uh, you know, checking out our website, which is, uh, you know, www.caresyntax.com. And, um, and that's, you know, also able to get a hold of me there. But LinkedIn's probably the easiest. Awesome. Again, thank you so much for coming on today's show. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. And then same to all of our listeners. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Business Black Belts. Should you want to see more content on both the show marketing, and business in general, feel free to check out my LinkedIn. Thanks.